Hey everyone, thanks for joining us for episode four of The Generalists, a podcast by Collectish. Today's episode is going to look a little different as we'll be going straight to the interview. Now, we spoke with Pranav Bakaraju, who is an up and coming name to watch in the world of progressive politics in Canada. And we had such a great discussion that it went a bit over time. And not wanting to make this a long ass Joe Rogan type podcast, we thought we'd save our general shenanigans until the next episode. So without further ado, the generalists are pleased to bring you Pranav Bakaraju. We are here with Pranav Bakaraju, who is a legislative assistant to the NDP MPP Chris Glover. Now, for those who don't know, the NDP is one of Canada's main parties. It is a social democratic party, and it is the most important party that is furthest left uh, on the spectrum. Sorry to all the Green Party people out there. His previous <laughs> career experience uh, was in compliance and anti-corruption in the financial sector. And as wealth inequality is the issue he is most passionate about resolving uh, to fight injustice in the world, this is what led him to his career in politics and support for the NDP. Uh, Pranav is an optimist who loves connecting with others, playing guitar, and finding serenity in meditation and nature. Pranav, welcome to The Generalists by Eclectish. Thank you, thank you. Uh, serenity now, if, uh, for any, any Seinfeld fans. <laughs> Insanity that's, that's later. Correct. Yeah, exactly. You're preaching to um, the choir, and, and you may regret your comments about wanting to connect with others after talking with us. We'll see. <laughs> no, no. Thank you so much for having me, Chris, Eli, and Paul. It's good to uh, see you again, and I'm glad we can have this conversation. Yeah, absolutely. So we have lots to cover, and we could probably talk about tons of different things over the course of hours, but you're a lot busier than we are. So we'll keep it, we'll keep it short. We're going to have you on multiple times, but for this conversation, we want to keep it focused on your political beliefs, uh, your experience in government and what you, what you feel for the future of society and politics in general. So if you want to just give us a little bit of background of what led you to the NDP party, uh, your experience, I know you ran for the nomination at one point and anything else you'd like to share before we get into a deeper dive. Yeah, sure. I think it's a really good question to ask people who work in politics how they ended up here, uh, because it's a really unique path, I think, um, and a really unique place to work. And you see people from so many different backgrounds. So that is definitely a good place to start. I can, I can start by saying I never in my life ever thought that I would be here. <laughs> um, I had uh, no plans of, of working in politics or, or uh, working in government or anything like that. And, you know, like most people, there were experiences in my life that made me realize the sort of impact and importance of government and regulations and policies and, and how it builds the society that we live in today and, and how it's building the society that we're going to see tomorrow. And there were a couple of factors in my life that led me to, to coming onto this path. You had mentioned uh, that my previous career was, uh, was in anti-corruption and compliance and financial services. Really, I have to start there because uh, even that in itself was um, was a big uh, sort of turning point in, in me coming here. I, I did a business administration degree at uh, Warford Laurier University. And honestly, I wasn't entirely sure what it is that I wanted to do or was going to do with that experience. Um, but, uh, you know, out of all the different things that I was considering, one thing that stuck out to me was this idea that businesses should serve the needs and wants of society. Whereas the experiences in my life made me feel that sometimes businesses were not 
it, it was almost like, I don't want to say they were taking advantage of society, but in some way they were, you know, like, uh, and, and I say this because a big experience of my life was the uh, 2008 financial recession. My uh, mom ended up, uh, she was kind of the ultimate uh, breadwinner in my family. She was a software engineer and she was laid off and, you know, had difficulty finding employment. And simultaneously, people were losing uh, homes, uh, you know, across uh, really the world. But we, we ended up losing our, our home. And it, it just had a big impact on me when I realized, wow, millions of people are losing their savings and, and the place where they live. But after the Wall Street bailout, these major banks and corporations were still paying their executives uh, record kind of uh, bonuses and whatnot. So when the, the financial recession was probably the biggest turning point. But even prior to that, being someone who was born in India, uh, I, was, I always felt very fortunate to be living in Canada. And, you know, I grew up and saw a lot of sort of poverty and homelessness around me. And I always wondered why that was the case and why we couldn't find a way to support people with the basic essentials that they needed. So seeing that experience in India, you know, uh, seeing the financial recession as I, as I grew up, you know, led me to walking onto the path of working in anti-corruption in the financial services industry. And my, my thinking was that, well, you know, maybe I can sort of try to understand this economic and financial system and see how we can really helping people and, and truly gets back to businesses serving the needs and wants of society, not the other way around. While doing so, I realized that, you know, I was essentially, I felt sometimes that I was sort of like, almost like the tick checkbox guy, you know, uh, at a, within this company that uh, wasn't truly making a difference within the overall system. Because what, what's the point of making, um, you know, ensuring companies are following rules and laws and regulations if the regulations itself seem flawed or skewed one way or the other? The more I, I learned that and realized that, um, I was like, okay, I don't feel like I'm really you know, wealth inequality is the, really the issue that I want to get to the heart to. And I didn't feel like I was getting to that. So I decided to uh, volunteer at a homeless shelter uh, to get another perspective of that problem. And that frontline work was very important and uh, eye-opening. But again, it was, it felt like a drop in the bucket, right? <laughs> Where now I'm, I'm helping people individually, but again, systematically, I'm not seeing, seeing that difference. And so it just kind of clicked at one point. Well, you know, financial regulation comes from legislation from the government. Nonprofit funding also comes from legislation from the government. So, and through grants and whatnot. So I was like, well, who's in the government right now? And uh, when I graduated, the year that I graduated, Donald Trump was running <laughs> to be a president of the United States. Ooh. And yeah, right. Uh, like many people, I was also a little bit more enamored with US politics than Canadian politics. But when I saw what was going on down South, I then realized, you know, one thing leads to another throughout society, and we've seen it, you know, decades in the past. And so I started looking at my local democracy, local politics here, um, and the provincial election was around the corner in 2018. And as I was doing more research, I was fortunate to literally on my uh, way to work, I was on a streetcar, and I ran into the NDP candidate in my writing, Chris Glover, <laughs> who was uh, campaigning for, for the election. And I'm going on a bit of a, you know, no, no worries. So it's a great story. It's serendipitous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was very, very serendipitous. I was, you know, literally comp comprehending, like, how can I get involved in this world that I know nothing about? And that, frankly, my entire life, you know, and especially coming from a place like India, the idea is that politics is 
very negative, you know, meant for corrupt sort of high level people. It was not something I wanted to do anything with, but I just realized I got some good advice uh, from some people um, who, who did work in politics who pointed out that, of course, number one, you have to start by looking at what are the values that you have? Uh, what policies do you want to see in place? And, you know, there are certain par parties that uh, align with certain ideologies and certain policies. And so you have to support that. But then you have to go a step further if you're getting involved, because then you have to really consider the people that are running. And especially within your local writing, if you're going to get involved in volunteer, for example, you know, uh, really look at the candidates because you have to be able to trust the person that is going to represent you. Uh, they are your voice. Uh, an MPP, you know, a member of provincial parliament, they are your member of the provincial parliament speaking on behalf of you. And that really kind of spoke to me. And so it was very serendipitous that I was, you know, uh, getting on the streetcar when I met Chris. And I was sort of already leaning, uh, you can probably tell by many of the things that I'm saying, that uh, I was already leaning to be uh, progressive in some form, but I didn't have a party sort of affiliation by any means. And so I had a conversation with Chris. He was uh, used to be a professor and he taught the history and economics uh, in Ontario. Uh, oh, sorry, history and economics of Ontario. And yeah, you know, he just asked me like, what are the issues that you care about? And, and I, I said, well, wealth inequality, affordable housing as a young person. I don't know if I could ever afford a home uh, and climate change. Those were my sort of key, key points. So Pranav, like, this all sounds, well, first of all, amazing story. And all your values, I think are things that the majority of people can get behind. Mm -hmm. uh, now you're, we want to have a frank conversation here because we're all aligned on those values. However, mm -hmm. myself and Paul, at least would probably consider ourselves to be uh, blue liberals, you know, center left. Eli's a little bit more left, but he's, he's a big, he's a big liberal Trudeau boy. And Absolutely. yeah. And uh, unashamedly a Trudeau boy. And I guess my question would be those values are universal and mm -hmm. probably the vast majority of Canadians would support that. However, the NDP has never come close to winning a national election mm -hmm. at least. And they've won provincial elections, but it's not like it's a, they're always in contention each and every mm -hmm. year. So my question is, is what do you think the NDP and the progressive movement in general in North America, at least, is missing in connecting with these voters? Mm -hmm. That's a good question. <laughs> that is a very good question. There are many reasons uh, to, to go into it. The first thing that I would say is that there are many forms of left progressive sort of groups and ideologies. Um, sorry about that. <laughs> and so what that means is that there are sometimes within the party themselves, there can be differences in execution. That's really what it comes down to. Like you said, there's a lot of people with these types of values. I, I would also point out that they're not universal. Unfortunately, as we have found out, not everybody believes in climate change. You know, not everybody believes in those things. Um, but the vast majority of people do. And you're right, the NDP. So I, you know, the NDP values is something that most people can, can get behind. But there is a system of belief, I think, in Canada that puts the liberals and conservatives almost as like the mainstream in comparison to the NDP, even though the NDP for decades has been one of the most important factors in our politics in pushing Canada towards the left. You know, so uh, there's actually a lot of uh, analysis done 
about how uh, the NDP plays an important role in Canadian politics, because even though they may not have, uh, you know, won a federal election, as you, as you pointed out, they've actually played that position of pushing Canada more prog- to, to be more progressive, to move to further towards the left. The NDP is the reason why we have universal health care, right? In, in terms of actually connecting with voters and why that hasn't happened as of yet, I think a large part of it goes back to resources and, and funding. The fact is that Liberals and Conservatives have a machine of uh, donations that they just are a little bit better resourced. And the NDP have actually more numbers of donors, but they're small dollar donors because we're fighting for sort of low income individuals. We're not fighting for, you know, uh, the privileged and powerful. So when we do receive donations, they aren't as large. So I think there's a bunch of different factors I could sort of go on and on Mm. as to why that's the case. And just I'm really curious about the the first factor that you uh, mentioned, Pranav, the sort of Mm -hmm. different factions in the NDP, because you're right, like the NDP has, you know, historically, it's been the conscience, they call it the conscience of parliament, it's pushed progressive issues and all these sorts of things. But NDP have tried different governing strategies as a, you know, uh, in electoral politics, they've done recent history, Mulcair in 2015. And for those listeners may not know, he was a more moderate leader his platform was more moderate arguably than even the trudeau liberals at that time Mm -hmm. and then with jagmeet singh the current leader gone more in a progressive direction and then there's some even further progressive like a a nikki ashton type or uh, the those who would endorse the leap manifesto wanting to end fossil fuels etc the point is there's a lot of different schools of thought what does your ndp look like how do you reconcile all those different schools of thought under this, you know, big orange tent, I guess. Yeah, I, you know, that's the word that you you use, the big orange tent. And the idea is, I believe that we need to be building out this tent to be as big as possible to to get more people involved. Uh, We see it down south with the, the, the Democrats as well. The Democratic Party has AOC, but it also has Nancy Pelosi. It has these centrist corporatist types, and then you have these very progressive, radical Bernie Sanders types, right? But the idea of, of uh, for example, I'm, I'm a huge Bernie fan, I should first say. So the idea of saying that anything that they're proposing is radical is, is just, it's actually a bit of a sort of Republican slash conservative talking point to scare voters leaving that these very altruistic slash optimistic values cannot be put into place uh, in policy. However, it's that is essentially um, these powerful parties trying to control the fact that they have created policies in such a way that sort of has created this class divide and, and now they don't want to acknowledge it. But regardless of how it happened, is that are these coalitions sustainable? Like the, the idea that, yeah. you know, AOC can coexist in a party with uh, maybe not John Kasich, but somebody to the left of him, you know, Joe Biden, maybe. Uh, is that a sustainable coalition? Is it sustainable for, you know, a disaffected liberal to join up with a, a social, an eco-socialist or something like that? Yeah, that's a great question. So we constantly hear on the left of people who want to essentially, they want a revolution, right? And then you have uh, somebody like the liberals who they don't want a revolution, they want consensus. The thing is that the liberals, and you pointed out earlier with the Trudeau government, their brand is very progressive. The liberals have a very progressive brand but then we find that they govern a little bit closer to center, right? And so that's where the NDP struggles a little bit, where we often propose policies that the liberals later on happen to sort of revamp and promote uh, to be their own as well. 
So I think that that is a constant battle that you'll have within progressive groups because the, the whole idea of, of being progressive, one of the whole ideas is to be principled on it as well. And it's very difficult in politics to stay, stay and stick with your principles because at some point when you're working on strategy and execution, you have to find the compromises. And the question is, where do you compromise? I think that's really where the factions have those debates within. And those are healthy debates to have and, and they need to happen. And I think it's important for a party like the NDP that believes in grassroots membership and Democrat and the democratic process that the, the membership, the voice of the membership should be heard. And that is a very diverse voice. So whatever it speaks, you know, they should be listened to. Yeah, I think that's a great point you raise about sticking to your values and principles and then also balancing compromise. You know, there's probably a lot of, you know, more left-leaning type liberals who, liberals or left-leaning type Democrats or left-leaning type labor, if you're in the UK, anywhere in the world, someone who might identify closely with progressive values, but sort of say to themselves that, if I come out as an unapologetic progressive and I'm completely principled and, and, you know, sticking to my guns in this stance, then I might not get what I want to get done done. And in fact, if I'm so ardent in my uh, sticking to my guns and sticking to my progressive values, then maybe there's the chance that that turns some people off and then parties that aren't very friendly to progressive values get elected. So how do you square that as, as uh, someone, you know, I take it that you, you're un unapologetic about your progressive values. And, you know, I, I, I appreciate anyone who's principled in their stance. So I, I respect that. But how do you square you being principled and, and sticking to your stance with kind of the argument that, well, maybe if you have something that's more like the Trudeau liberals, where your brand is progressive, but you govern from more consensus, you might actually get more done. Do you believe that's even possible? Or do you think that you, you will get more done if you just stick to your guns and actually gain power some way. I think that the system is set up to make you believe that you have to govern and do politics like the liberals. Because when you look at the first past the post system that we have in Canada, for example, as a result of that, there's a large percentage of voters who don't necessarily have their voices heard. So, you know, proportional representation, ranked ballots, there's all kinds of other sort of suggestions that have been put out there. So that's one thing to look at, our electoral system itself. Why is it set up in the way that it is set up? You're right in terms of having to, like I said, policy by policy, I think you have to do that review to see where is the support for this bill, for example, or, you know, this proposal, and how far can, how far progressive can we go? where the larger group in society still sort of agrees with it. And to be clear, that's, that is a challenge that we have is that a lot of progressive values, while everyone agrees, for example, in Canada, let's be clear, everyone in Canada agrees on universal health care at this point. But why is that? Why is it that uh, people in the United States that pay, you know, 10 times more for health care do not seem to agree, even during a pandemic? It's because they have been socialized this way. It is because they have heard again and again from the media, from the politicians, from the people in power to say, this is the way that it should be. This is the way that's right. And the fact is we have been socialized in a system of capitalism. We've been socialized in a system of colonialism, to be honest, you know, the way that we look at the, our institutions and, and how it exists. The fact is that we are have to unlearn or relearn some things to consider the possibilities of that things can be better. I think that's the biggest thing. And so that's the biggest thing for me as well is to just spread hope and optimism to say that this is possible. 
Like, because yeah. if people don't even believe that it's possible, they're never going to try. And if we never try, we're never going to accomplish what we're trying to accomplish. Like, so yeah, I unapologetically I, progressive. I, I agree for the most part, but like to give a little bit of background, anyone who knows me pretty well and speaks with me frequently knows that I tend to have a bigger bone to pick with progressives than far right conservatives. And the reason is because the far right conservatives and the f- conservatives in general are doing are off doing their own thing. Whatever they're doing with policy and with campaigning, they're doing, I have no impact on. What upsets me about progressives is that I feel like we have common desires, climate change, affordable housing, just a, a good enough social safety net that no one has to worry about where they're sleeping, what they're going to eat, if their kids can go to school. I 100% agree with all that. But my biggest issue is that progressives tend to take on these niche issues, a lot of which I think are plain bad ideas, but we could disagree on that. But whether you think they're bad ideas or not, the fact of the matter is they turn off a lot of people and most people don't give a shit. And that ends up losing elections and puts conservatives in power who end up rolling back a lot of the things that we're both looking for, climate change or fair taxation uh, on corporations and, and building up revenues to support other services. So it actually makes the NDP, in my mind, and progressives seem like they actually don't give a shit about the regular person. All they're trying to do is virtue signal that they're I know that's that's a term that is heard often. Some people like it or don't like it, but regardless that they're they are more morally righteous than anyone else because they care about these issues. Mm-hmm. Honestly, let's have a frank conversation. Tell yeah. me, I'm, tell me I'm a dumbass. Tell me anything. <laughs> like let's let's open it up a little because we we have this opportunity. We respect the hell out of you, even though we don't agree. So this is a good opportunity to have like a fantastic conversation and get into these things mm-hmm. instead of just in our own little echo chambers where we post, oh, look at this new progressive thing being done now. And then we just laugh about it and that's it. This is an excellent time to have a conversation about it. Yeah, I I really appreciate you mentioning that because I think one of the most frustrating things that I experience as a progressive is when the work that I want to do to fight climate change, to end wealth inequality, et cetera, et cetera, gets uh, caught up in these ideas of virtue signaling and identity politics. Now, to be clear, social justice warriors, like that whole idea, and I know that's what you're referring to, it's it's kind of an execution thing. To, to your point about alt-right conservatives speaking about things that don't necessarily affect you, right? Whereas progressives tend to do that. The, the reason why progressives speak so loudly on some of these alt-right issues is because the things that the alt-right are saying aren't necessarily affecting really probably the four of us, or, or maybe, you know, as a, a white heterosexual male, it's not going to affect you as much, right? So that's the first thing to consider is that we cannot imagine the lived experience of someone that is oppressed or has been oppressed. You know, that's the whole, the, you know, going back to the, for example, the black community, the, everything that they have faced, and now the systemic racism that ex- exists in institutions now, the first thing we have to start from is that we cannot imagine someone else's pain and suffering as they've gone through. And, and the idea and concept of privilege, I think, is is so clear throughout our lives. I, as a person, I'm a brown man, but I can speak English. And I know even speaking English is a privilege, right? There's so many different layers to that. 
But so, so all those things absolutely have to be considered. And that's when we talk about looking at things from an equity level, even COVID-19. When you look at things from a from an equity level, you see that in Toronto, it's mostly racialized low-income workers working in manufacturing sort of areas that have these cases because they're essential workers that have to go into, into work. They can't work from home, right? So 100% of those rights are important and they have to be uh, fought for. I think the question that you're asking is why is the strategy and the way that they're doing the execution of that so sort of annoying. And I will say, I think that just like any movement, the progressive movement needs to find a way, in my opinion, to bring people in. I do not think that it helps to build up walls or to criticize uh, other people in, in a way that puts them off to what you're doing. Yeah. But, and, and sorry, just wanted to mm-hmm. get into that for one sec, because sure. I was, I think it's important what you said that the way that privilege, you know, envelops all of us, we, we all live with certain degrees of privilege. Obviously, I'm a, I'm a white heterosexual male, that that's a huge privilege uh, in our society. And I think it is, you, you have a fair point that it's easy for somebody to say, you know, why are we getting so caught up in trans rights, and we're not, you know, a trans person, necessarily. I understand all that. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a really valid point to that. We need more empathy, we need more recognition of these things. Mm-hmm. But people I think the problem is that people don't tend to like to hear they're privileged. People yeah. like to believe that they have earned everything themselves, particularly yeah. conservatives, but normal people like other people too. How do you sort of go about communicating this language of, of privilege in a way that we can all understand and is digestible to people that like your average person can appreciate without feeling attacked? Have you devised any sort of strategies for that in your interactions with voters or what, what, what do you think? I think that uh, I think that that's the key point is that we have to educate without attacking, uh, you know. And I do want to highlight that there is a point, however, when we cannot enter a debate because the debate that's coming from the other side is whether someone has a right to exist sometimes because of their religion, sexual orientation, etc. We cannot debate those those people, and it might appear as and so that's when people say, "Oh yeah, this progressives." you know, doesn't care at all about having a logical discussion about so-and-so. But that's because you're questioning someone's right to exist or something deeper about their identity. So in that way, identity is crucially important. However, you, you are correct in that it can't be the crux of the issue because then anybody who isn't part of that identity is sort of shut out and doesn't feel like they understand, right? Um, See, I don't know, Pranav, I, I, actually, I actually disagree because... I think that if your idea is better, it should win. And the definition of right to exist is probably not uniform as it should be. Because I've, I've heard these arguments, Paul or Eli jump in if I'm like completely off here. I've heard this from both sides though, right? Okay, you have conservatives saying these people are completely out to lunch. Why am I even going to talk with them? Right? They're just in la la mm-hmm. land. But then when you hear progressives saying, oh, well, they're not acknowledging someone's right to exist. Well, from what I've seen, sometimes that's not a very high bar. Um, and I don't know, I think that might be a little... Well, I think the, the classic, it's, it's a cliche now because of, you know, all these fucking dweebs like Jordan Peterson, but like the, the pronouns thing, right? Like that was a big thing. Yep. And, and I think, you know, that's frustrating to like the average person who may not understand pronouns. But I do think there's something to be said for like, if the person in that community thinks that like, hey, you're like, you're not kind of identifying me the way I want to be identified. I see how that can at least be maybe threatening is too strong a word, but abrasive certainly and, and unnecessary. And, mm-hmm. and that's sort of where 
and what is that line between what is speech that is just kind of you know abrasive and, and impolite and these sorts of ideas the right wing does versus actual hate speech and, and who draws those lines because that's for, like legally the supreme court says we do have freedom of expression but when it gets that line of hate speech that's when it gets unacceptable and i think yeah. finding that line has been such a huge point of contention in our in our politics honestly yeah and it is an extremely complicated discussion to find that line i would agree with you but i think the the key point i mean in my opinion if someone wants to be called something sorry like if they prefer a certain pronoun um it's to me it's like their name i yeah, my name on, is right? pronounced yeah. this way you know <laughs> yeah. i have no that doesn't affect me i don't have any issue with doing that so you know it's it's when people get caught up in in their freedom of speech being taken over by that i think that uh it could be of two two reasons number one maybe the person who is doing that educating about these pronouns isn't executing it in the way that is most effective, right? And that does happen. I don't want to necessarily put it on that person because it's also equally important that the other party is trying to learn. And yeah, we see a lot of that, right? Where, where people aren't actually willing and interested in trying to learn. You have to have two good faith uh, parties to have this discussion. But once you are having that sort of discussion, I think that when you get towards you know, the real crux of the issue, it's about, you know, the, the other side that doesn't want to say, the conservatives or Republicans or whatever you want to say, who have a concern about these transgender rights and all this kind of stuff, I think it, the concern is change and a lack of understanding uh, around what these issues are. And then they feel like they're being attacked, being called, you know, that they have privilege and all this stuff. I don't necessarily know that that conversation is, is a very helpful one. I think it's better to focus the conversation around specific examples of institutional discrimination or oppression, which absolutely does exist, whether it's racism, sexual orientation, et cetera. If you point those, those clear examples of see how X person, how many you know, transgendered people who were murdered in Toronto, their, mur their murders weren't being investigated the same way that a white nine-year-old girl who was killed might, yeah. might have been. You know, Like that's an example where you can really point out this is privilege of play, right? Yeah, I think it, it, these things are so difficult, so complicated to conceptualize within like a pr political context, right? And then and try to wrap a strategy around how you want to like achieve things to improve any sort of outcome, right? But I, I just, obviously I agree with everything you're saying from a principle value standpoint, like, like my own personal values and principles, you know, align very closely with what you're saying, but I, I just see it from a completely different angle when it comes politically, like, you know, the kind of the way Chris was saying, like sort of a morally righteous position or having that best idea win. I actually think that yeah, most ideas should be engaged with beyond someone saying, I want to tear down every single institution and rip up constitutions, bills of rights that we have. I think we should engage with almost everything, you, you know, that, and that's, for someone to say like oh well, this person's not acknowledging my right to exist and that's why i don't want to engage with them like i think any sort of instance of that throughout history is, is shown that that not only increases divisions and extremism on both sides but it just leads you to a more dangerous place right you know i think of chris you've seen this documentary i think of this documentary uh what was it called the white right where this uh muslim journalist british lady but she's muslim right I think she, yeah, I think she was actually a Norwegian. Oh, she know, whatever. She's European. She's European, European Muslim. And uh, she comes to the United States 
her roles to say, or the point of the documentary is to be like, well, like let's let's find a little bit more about the alt right and white supremacy. So she's engaging full on with these people, and like mm-hmm. they're invite, she's invited into their homes, having conversations with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, at one point, she actually puts the onus on them to say like, "Do you hate me? Like, why don't you like me?" And the person can't say it. Like the the person mm-hmm. at the end of the day, after spending time with her, can't say he doesn't like her. He, he it's they made a friend. Mm-hmm. They made friendship, right? Yeah. So I think that sort of rhetoric, that's abrasive. Like like someone's, sorry, I mean the sort of rhetoric of I'm not going to engage with someone because they don't agree with my right to exist. I think that's almost as abrasive as someone someone being like making fun of progressives for and, and in a very mm-hmm. abrasive way. But, but I mean, it yeah. is tough though. Like, do you want to talk to somebody who doesn't acknowledge your say, right you to exist? You just, like, did you just hear what you just said? Like, that's, no, that's what not. I mean. No, but I'm not saying it's easy. I, I, you know, I never said it was easy, but I just think <laughs> but that, so, has so he, be, that has to be part of the path, I think. Sure. I, the, the challenge is that the onus gets put back on the person that is being oppressed to show why they shouldn't be. And that is a problem. And, and when, when you look throughout history, and actually forget history, even present time right now, you have someone yeah. like Donald Trump who bring up facts, like, I shouldn't say facts, uh, you know, Things that don't make any sense, and they'll tr- he'll try to pass them off as facts, and he'll force you into a discussion or debate on these things. You cannot get caught up in that. That's one thing also that I've learned in politics, which, by the way, the Ontario government does a great job of, which is they try to change the topic. They try to change the topic from the actual message, and they get you involved in a conversation where you're then trying to rebut what their point is, but their point itself shouldn't be considered valid. You know, that's the issue. So sure, I can get into a conversation with this person who doesn't believe that I, you know, deserve to, uh, as, as, as a heterosexual uh, uh, brown man, I, I struggle to even come up with the phrases. But like, if I was in a position where I felt that I was sort of being oppressed and I had to prove as to why I shouldn't be, sure, a one-on-one conversation, I'd be happy to do that. I think I'm a nice guy. I could probably convince yeah, people. But on a, on a mass scale, when someone is espousing views like through the media and, ma- and mainstream media, and usually the person who is who's doing this quote unquote oppressing is tends to be the person with privilege and, and power in the first place, right? And so that's that I don't think it's it's a it's a power dynamic that the conversation doesn't allow me to truly I, express what I want to. Right. But I also I also doubt that the I doubt that the approach of shutting it down as all racist, all bad faith, all terrible mm-hmm. is necessarily more effective. And I think the biggest thing that I'm going to point to in support of that is, you know, we're just seeing exit polls kind of come out from the U S election. Now mm-hmm. Donald Trump has done better than any Republican with minority voters in the past, you know, people that supposedly doesn't agree with the right to exist or whatever the left rhetoric is. Right. So like, how is the progressive strategy that they've been following for the past two, three, four, five years? Mm-hmm. How, how can how can it be working when these people that you're supposed to be fighting for, supporting, end up voting for that person that you think is so terrible in greater droves than before? Right? Like I just yeah. think I just think that like this politically, the strategy is not working. To be clear, the conversation about progressivism should not start and end with identity politics it is much more beyond that it is about 
I, it is about the class war. It is about, you know, uh, climate change. It is about these other issues. And I, to be, again, honest with you, I think it is a conservative talking point yeah. to, to pull progressive values and movements back into, yeah, well, you know, all they want to do is, is have pride parades, you know, 365 days a year. Right. Like, that's not the case. You know, this is just one aspect of, of a much larger sort of scheme. And so uh, Donald Trump, what he does, he's a salesman, he's a very sleazy one. And oh, yeah. he says very quick, short things in sound bites that uh, people can pick up very easily through the media, um, you know, the media that supports and Fox media, et cetera. And people who have been beaten down by the system, which, you know, it's not like the Democrats are perfect, right? Like they have a bunch of, you know, corporate centrists themselves that aren't truly helping the working people. So yeah, when Donald Trump comes in and says, I'm going to drain the swamp and be an you know, I'm not this insider, he's hitting on those on those marks. So it's not about the the social identity issues that people are are voting for Trump. You know, that's not the case. What what that points out is that the Democrats aren't properly catering to the the lowest income workers and the people that really need help. It's it's interesting. I first of all, I don't think we should ever conflate Donald Trump with anyone who's against the progressive movement at all, right? Yeah. Because I'm someone who's generally very, very critical of the progressive movement. I was terrified of Bernie Sanders winning, not just because of his policies, mostly because I, I was confident that had he won, Donald Trump would have destroyed him. And that's what my fear was. Yeah. I was so happy that Biden won because uh, this is the nomination, because I knew that Biden would be able to take some of those Obama Trump voters who just care about living their lives, not too much government interference and kind of take a backseat, not needing to follow politics all the time. And he did do that. Now, what Paul said about the exit polls, this is my hypothesis, you may have a different one, but what I see there is that the Republican party and conservative media in the United States loves having AOC around, loves having the squad around. They love that. These are, these are four people. And if you want to include Bernie, although Bernie more ably, you know, shows his class bona fides, like, you know, he actually seems like he cares about everyone, which he does, but having the squad there is perfect. They're like, here is the democratic party, even though there's four Congress people in an, ex an extremely e easy districts to win, they try and paint that as the entire democratic party when it's not at all. And it's done pretty well for them. So yeah like that's why my fear with Bernie winning was okay now it's just going to prove that the Democratic Party is progressive left the Republican Party is already bankrupt long ago and now you have these two polar opposites who are never going to be able to compromise it's going to be constant warfare uh, that's why I was a Biden supporter since since day one actually like Eli will know I was uh sad that he didn't run for nomination uh back when Hillary was running mm -hmm. um it's true he did say that although Hillary still would have would have beat him but anyways that's that's my kind of politics, consensus building and ability, yeah. to, ability to win, ability to win, right? Abil ability to win matters because unless you win, you can't execute. So I, I will agree with you on that. The issue with consensus, however, really it comes down to, I mean, consensus is beautiful. Like I'm not saying that we shouldn't have consensus. Like we absolutely should and we should push for it. However, um, and really that, that, that's actually like the liberal sort of mandate is that they want to govern by consensus. Right. I think the differences with, for example, the NDP and liberals is the NDP wants to protect and support the most vulnerable person out there. And the most vulnerable 
group of people, they're a minority. They, that's just how, how it is. That's how it works. And so the consensus won't necessarily always consider that minority, right, of, of either side. The greater consensus is about the middle majority. And that's how the liberals operate. Like, what, where did we come up, come up with $2,000 uh, a month for the uh, uh, Canadian Emergency Response Benefit, the CERB? Where did that come from? Like, you know, there was no questions about, oh, how are you going to pay for this when that came on? The reason is because the large majority of people that were being impacted by this pandemic needed support. The liberals knew this. They knew that if they wanted to win the next election or, you know, they knew that they had the greatest consensus in order to put this policy out there. So they were able to put the money out there. But now if they calculated that the average family needs about $2,000 a month in order to survive, which in a lot of cases still not necessarily enough, why is it that uh, welfare has been about eight hundred dollars for for over a decade and hasn't been increased? These are the welfare. These are people that are often by themselves, have disabilities, you know, are in, are in worse situations, and and they get nothing, right? And it's clearly like the the numbers show that this is this is the amount that was given during the pandemic because this is what was required of people, so for people to survive. So why isn't that given to the most vulnerable uh, person? And I think it goes back to what kind of society do you want to live in? The conservatives we know are in a much more, you know, it's about people earning what they earn. It's an individualistic view, right? Versus the NDP, it's about social security. And this, uh, you know, let's create an empathetic society because we want to look out, out for our neighbor. You know, the, the, the uh, measure of our society is how we treat our most vulnerable people. The liberals are basically in between, <laughs> trying to hover between the two. You won't see major change to help that the, the lowest sort of denominator in society from the liberals because they want consensus, which is exactly what you said. And the key difference that I want to point out is that people who are in that middle will not want a revolution and they will not fight for that because they are not impacted so negatively by it yet. If the liberals didn't put a, the, the CERB out during this pandemic, then they would have acted a little bit more like the NDP and gone a little bit more left and said, hey, why don't we all deserve these benefits and whatnot? So the only difference between that middle class and that vulnerable person is urgency. That vulnerable person is out on the street right now in the winter and needs a home, right? It's somebody that can't afford medication and is about to, is about to pass away. So, and again, not to use the P word, but that is where privilege comes in again, because it's just difficult to see the perspective that these people are facing. And that is why you do have these factions that are saying, even within the NDP, I get, I get people, you, you guys said I'm unapologi uh, unapologetically progressive. There are people, uh, NDP members, that might think that I'm sort of the establishment guy <laughs> because I'm not calling for a revolution to break down Ontario right now. And oh, there no. are people on that side. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And I think um, on the on the subject of consensus building, I think there's something to be said to at least in the US, and to a lesser extent, Canadian conservatives, it's hard to build consensus with bad faith actors who legitimately want bad things to happen to you. And I think that's what you see, you know, you, you mentioned the liberals are in the middle of building consensus that hasn't stopped the conservatives from hating their guts at every step of the way for the last five years or whatever it's been. And I, I, so I think there is something to your argument, even if I disagree with the NDP, that if you're going to try and uh, if you're not going to get consensus anyway, you might as well try and get things done. But on the issue of you talk about governing for the majority and the NDP, you, you feel the NDP is sticking up more for the minority. 
how do you find getting like these kinds of issues for for minorities, indigenous communities, or or, or you know your lo your local area that maybe doesn't get a lot of scrutiny? How do you get these issues that kind of attention in a world where you know national and international news just takes all the oxygen away? We all spent the last four years not shutting the fuck up about Donald Trump, and yeah. you know, indi many indigenous communities haven't had water this whole time. You know, this th that's the thing. It's one thing leads to another, and that's why each step there's a. I was never much of a history buff when I was in, in school or anything, but what I realized as I came out of, out of university is history gives you an indication to show how step-by-step step over time, society has changed in a way that has led things. Like if you wanna to try to understand where we are today, you have to look at what happened last year, 10 years before that, 20 years before that, et cetera. And I find that such an interesting exercise because then you realize how one little step can lead to this greater sort of series of uh, snowball effects that ends up creating the situation that we're in now. And I mentioned that, sorry, I, I got distracted because someone, someone came in. Um, yeah, so I mentioned, I, I mentioned it's really important to, to look at uh, history and how we've come to where we are today to realize the importance of each step that we take today. And so like there is no long-term future, whether it's climate change, affordable housing, whatever issue you wanna look at, we have to start solving these things now. There is no greater time that comes because every action that we take now will lead our society one way or the other. And I think that that's where some of the urgency comes in from progressives to say that everything that we see today happened because of actions that were or weren't taken in the past. So that's just a bit of an aside, but a point that I want to make. As for the, the you know, issue around how do you get people to focus on, um, for example, the fact that Indigenous people don't have water, et cetera, how do you connect with people on issues that don't always affect them or they're not always looking at? I think that that's one of the biggest challenges. And the way that I put it is, is what you guys said. Everybody has these values. I believe everybody has NDP values. It's just about raising awareness as to how it is possible. You know, the liberal conservatives, uh, the liberal and conservative government on, in the Canadian federal government voted against an NDP motion to tax 1% of the most wealthy individuals, over $20 million, who have incomes of over $20 million, like 1% of over $20 million. And this is during a pandemic when we have seen grocery store corporations and big box stores have enormous profits while, again, like the recession, People are losing jobs, people are losing small businesses, et cetera. And so it's about changing that conversation and just showing people that literally look at these policies, look at the fact that for decades we've seen tax cuts, but we haven't seen an investment in public institutions, right? Like why is it that every politician wants to offer tax cuts, but they're not looking at investing in, in the greater good until there's a Great Depression and then, oh, we need the New Deal and we need the CERB. And then all the things start coming up when you have a pandemic, for example, and you realize, whoa, the health of my neighbor actually impacts my own health. The health of our society makes a difference because we're so interconnected. And so I feel like there is an inherent sort of selfishness, I guess, in humans where yeah, we, we want, you know, what's going to improve our own lives. And I guess my point is, if you ask anybody around the table, if my neighbor could have a good life and it wouldn't affect me in a, in a negative way, but rather I would still be fine. No one would say no to that, right? 
everybody wants the the you know we're social animals like everyone wants the world to to be in a good place i don't think anyone's against that it's just that there's fear from people who feel like things are going to be taken away from them for the other person and the conversation that needs to happen is to point out to people that in fact though by helping your neighbor you're going to be better off yourself society is going to be better off and that's where public education came from you know no one questions whether why taxes go into public education it's because we, at some point we realize you know what an educated population is important and so until grade 12 everybody pay your taxes and you know it doesn't matter whether you have a child or not you still pay taxes it goes into your school right so in the same way we need that for healthcare. we need that for transit transit should be a right we need that for housing we need that for everything because literally everybody else would be better off but we just haven't come to that point yet yeah sorry i, I know i'm I, ranting Paul. No, no, that's great. I, that's great. I totally agree. And I think this is one of those tensions in, you know, with within everybody within ourselves and within society, right, where, you know, you, you, you pretty aptly put it like if you go around a table of us or a table of neighbors, and you say, do you think that your neighbor's child should have access to medicine when they need it? And most people are going to say, yeah, absolutely. Like, yeah, let's, let's get that for them. But I think that there's either just an inherent selfishness in, in people in society or a, a lack of seriousness around each of these issues that I don't think progressives deal with very well, nor most people. So, you know, like, like Chris said, kind of consider myself a blue liberal, definitely more like centrist, moderate, but something that's sort of dawning on me and I don't think liberals or people more progressive really kind of deal with in a, in a good way the liberals are obviously a little more ignorant about this and they and they definitely play into it. But I think progressives are just as kind of not aware of this reality either. And it's that people, maybe people don't care or aren't as serious about these sort of things as we think, right? Like things like climate change, things like doing things to actually support, you know, the most vulnerable in our society. Like it's very easy in a poll for someone to say, yeah, climate change is a problem. We should do something. And then when you knock on their door and they say, I'm going to take $15,000 away from you every year to solve climate change. It's not unreasonable for people to have a kind of restraint against that. Your argument can be that climate change is the biggest, most pressing issue we have in the world. And, and it is. But the second that you knock on someone's door who has a family and you say, I'm going to take X amount of money away from you to solve it. You can't be surprised when someone is going to have legitimate questions or concerns about that. Right? So what is it that progressive lib progressives, NDP, Liberal Party should do to, to address that? Because Trudeau, he came up with this, whatever, address last week, typical Trudeau pomp and circumstance. We're going to hit these targets in 2030. It means nothing. It means nothing, right? Just a pat on the back for him and the party. But what is it we actually need to do so we actually make ground on these progressive things? Because if the reality is that people aren't as serious or don't care as much about these things as we think, then... I, I don't know. I don't know what we need to do. Mm -hmm. What do you think? Yeah, it's a good question. I think one of the greatest falsehoods that I have heard is when uh, people say, and I used to hear it a lot, I'm I'm socially progressive, but fiscally conservative. That is the worst <laughs> shit in the world. Oh my God. <laughs> it basically means I care, but I don't want to pay for it. So do you really care? Probably not, right? I think that it is important. This is where innovation comes into play. And the fact is that there have been innovative things, for example, with climate change, there have been, uh, for example, Ontario had a, a cap and trade program where they were going to limit the number of carbon emissions, give companies a certain 
essentially uh, carbon credits that they could use uh, to sell to other companies. If I'm a company that is lowering my emissions, I can, since I have extra credits, I can give it to another one. Like that is a, a sort of a market solution, right? To yeah. a to this problem. And then that was uh, removed by the Ontario Conservative government. Yeah, so it's completely you, egregious, completely yeah, egregious. hundred percent. There are electric vehicles and um, green technology that we could be investing in, right? And, mm -hmm. and put it, putting our factories into that. but it's really this resistance to change that we see when people say, no, I still want my good clean coal. What the fuck is, there's no, there's no such thing as clean coal. This is where the salesman tactics comes in, right? So I think it's just about innovation, but then selling that vision to people. And right now, the, the right, frankly, does a better job of speaking to people's emotions. And the reason for that, one of the large reasons for that is because they often use fear and this, this fear of change, this yeah. fear of look at what the other is doing, et cetera. And, yeah. and don't get me wrong, sometimes the left does that too, saying, hey, the, the, these people are taking away your rights to, to gay marriage or whatever, right? But and these are legitimate fears. Yeah. But I think that, <laughs> not to get too like cliche, but the whole love over hate thing, you gotta sell an optimistic vision and you mm -hmm. have to back it up with innovative, policies and and show that it is possible with with what we have today and it's it is however a difficult you're, you're fighting an uphill battle a little bit because the people that we're fighting against have the resources they, yeah. the system is set up to benefit them the democratic system the capitalist system whatever you want to name it it is set up to protect those who are privileged because they have the money and power to do that so it is a difficult challenge to, you know, counteract these mainstream narratives and all this kind of stuff. But it, it happens on the mass scale, but it happens on a one-on-one -on -one basis. So really, yeah. it's about individual conversation. Just go out, be kind to your neighbor, and talk about, hey, wouldn't it be great if the world was a better place? And what are the real issues that we have? Let's let's talk about it. And more people, you'll realize, agree and have these values. Bob, that was a, a great end. We've already taken up a lot of your time. It was a fantastic conversation, not out of the realm of possibility that we could do a full Joe Rogan podcast. And, I know, I told you. <laughs> and, and, and speak for three or four, uh, maybe even five hours. Yeah. But regardless, this was a really good conversation. We're going to have you on several times, no doubt about that. And in those situations, we'll just jump right into it. I know this podcast uh, started a, a little bit introductory, mm -hmm. which is fine. But this is good. You know what? At the end of the day, what it shows is that we have so much more in common than you might think by just going yeah. on Twitter or watching the news. And that doesn't even mean our backgrounds or identity or anything like that. It means yeah. our values. So thanks mm -hmm. for taking the time for speaking with us, giving us the progressive perspective. Uh, we disagreed on a lot. We agreed on way more. This is, this is been a great conversation. Thank you for your time. And we can't wait to have you back on. Oh, thank you so much for, for the conversation. And this is this is how we move forward. We have to be able to listen. We have to be able to discuss and debate. And I do think that we'll, we'll build a better world for all as we do it. Well, we hope you enjoy that conversation with Pranav. Regardless of your own interest in politics or what your beliefs are, just being able to have an open discussion where both sides are willing to learn and not just looking to dunk on each other goes a long way. We can't wait to have Pranav on again very soon, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Generalists.